listening to His Time on Worldwide KFUO. We are the messenger of good news, and this is your morning drive for the soul, waking you up with the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Directly from the text of Holy Scripture, rightly dividing law and gospel that you might be affirmed and confirmed in your faith, drowning that sinner you woke up with and remembering you're not him alone. You are a new man in Christ, ready to face this world in vocation, serving your neighbor and looking for the life of the world to come. Today, doing that from John chapter 14 with my friend and special guest, Pastor Matthew Richard in studio here in town, all the way from Gwinter, North Dakota to promote his new book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? Going to talk about that in just a moment. We're going to be looking at John chapter 14, verses 1 through 17. And if you do have a question or comment about that, phone lines are open. If you want to throw Pastor Richard off, you can definitely call in and uh, mock him on the air. It's a great thing to do. Or you can tweet me at RevFisk and we'll get your question or comment there as well. Pastor Richard, good morning and it is uh, good to see your face. Yeah, good morning. Good to be here. So let's not waste any time. I want to talk about the, the, the real Jesus. I mean, Zion Gwinner is a great thing where you serve. We can talk about that too some other time. But uh, will the real Jesus please stand up? And like I was saying to you before, before the or during the break there, um, this wasn't a book you really planned to write, right? You were invited to speak at a Reformation event uh, way up on the, the north end of North Dakota. And uh, this is what came out of it. Yeah, yeah. It was in uh, Grand Forks, and both you and I were invited to the Reformation, well, let's see, Road to Reformation, right? Right, I think that's yeah. right. Yeah, Road to Reformation event, and uh, so, yeah, we were up there with Chris Rosebro, and so we were both invited up there, and uh, so... I was given the topic to speak on Christ alone for the 21st century, I believe the title was. And so uh, looking at the part of alone, that makes sense, you know, Jesus, him alone. But as I was, as I was working on it, I realized that, you know, if I say Christ alone, pretty much everybody can, you know, say, yeah, yeah, Jesus alone. But then the question says, well, what Jesus are we talking about? Right. And so in that presentation, I decided to say, well, let's focus on some of the false Christ. So let's identify who Christ is by showing who he is not. And so I think, boy, it was like six or seven different mm-hmm. false Christs. And then from there, uh, it was recorded for World View Everlasting. Mm-hmm. And then we posted it, ended up down here in St. Louis. And somebody saw it uh, from CPH and they said, hey, would you consider a book on this? And so I kind of kicked it around and, and I thought, well, maybe this would be kind of fun and had about six or seven false Christs and expanded to 10. And I thought, well, we had 10, we might as well make it an even dozen, right? That's right. And so here we are. Yeah. 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 Well, and I mean, I don't normally don't mention World View Everlasting on the air as a, a video channel that I'm very intimately connected to. But if people are curious, one way to find out more about the book is there's a series of videos CPH has done, which right. are being released on World View Everlasting right. with you in them called the, the grappling videos. And they're the most recent ones. You can go and get a taste of the book there directly from Pastor Richard's mouth for each of the Jesuses, right? Right, right. Yeah, that's that's in conjunction with uh, Concordia Publishing House and World View Everlasting, which, you know, obviously both you and I work with. And uh, so, yeah, each, each week there's one being released in so every Thursday morning one yeah. is being released. They're like a three-minute video focusing on each false Christ. And you can find that at worldvieweverlasting.com or at facebook.com slash worldvieweverlasting. And uh, the, the last piece that I wanted to kind of ask you about here, and I'm going to oh yeah, and I want to connect this idea to a movie, which you maybe don't want to watch. It's called The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. I was actually disappointed. Some guys really love it. They think it's really funny. But there's this huge moment where this kind of obscene race car driver, he's made a lot of money. He's made his family very rich. He's making fun of Southern culture. And he's having dinner with his family. (laughs) And he prays. And he he has this bizarre prayer to the baby Jesus. And (laughs) And then there's an argument amongst the family about you can't pray to the baby Jesus. He's not a baby anymore. He's I can pray to whatever Jesus. I want to. That's kind of what this book is trying to face, right? That that's a reality out there that needs to be addressed. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's hilarious. The scene is hilarious. He's like, you know, I want to pray to the baby Jesus, you know, the eight-pound Jesus, uh, because he has this real sentimental connection to him. Mm-hmm. And then the other guy goes, you know, I want to see my Jesus as a samurai, you know, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> as, <right. laughs> as some karate guy. And But the whole point is, I mean, really, the essence of the book is that we, we fabricate Jesus and we fashion him into the image that we want him to be for ourselves. And so in the book, we look at 12 false Christs of our culture, 12 um, idols, uh, ways that we we have uh, idolatrized Christ in our mind, uh, refashioned him in our mind to suit our own fancy, to appease us. So you'll you'll meet in the book like the social justice warrior, false Christ. You'll meet the uh, national patriot, the mascot, um, the giver of bling. That's that's a favorite. That's awesome. <laughs> the giver of bling, a bunch of other ones. The moral example, uh, the teddy bear, uh, the feminized Christ, which is a, a false Christ that's been stripped of all masculinity. Right, right. And so all these false Christs. And so as we go through that, you know, we have 12 false Christs, and we're asking the question, will the real Jesus uh, please stand up? So by the very last chapter, uh, hopefully the reader is going to be just saying, you know, enough of this madness. Right. Give me the real Jesus. And the real Jesus is uh, proclaimed in the very last chapter. Yeah, right, right. And the, and the Christ of Scripture, right? Ultimately, I mean, I want to give away the book. You should definitely read the book. I've read it. I've, uh, Andy Bates is reading it, and it's like, this is good. Uh, my wife read it. She said, this is good. So you want to read it. But ultimately, this is, look, we got to define our Jesus from Scripture. we got to go back to what the Bible actually says, the people who knew him, what they we're told by him to say, and that brings us to John chapter 14, verses 1 and following, where the real Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, is having a conversation with his chosen band in that upper room and says some things that uh, that we like and some things that are like, Whoa, what, what, Jesus, huh? And we're going to try to dig that apart for you right now. So if you want to turn, John chapter 14, verses 1 to 7 is where we're going to get at. And just in case you've been following along the last few weeks and you're like, wait a minute. We were just at Luke chapter 23, and Jesus was being crucified. You're right. And now we have turned past Trinity Sunday, and the Daily Lectionary moves into John, which we had left behind way back, I think, in Lent. And we're going to kind of finish up the rest of Holy Week. So we're jumping back into the, really, the night he was betrayed, the middle of Holy Week for John's Passion. John's uh, John's Gospel spends a lot of time on the Passion Week, so there's there's still a lot of text left here as well. We didn't skip the resurrection. That happened on Saturday, if you were reading then, but we are going to dig right into, the again, the upper room. Any, any other context besides what I just said that you want to bring to bear on the text before we, we jump in? Because we haven't really talked about recently John versus Luke, right? The difference between them and whatnot. Well, I, I would say the biggest thing to pick up on is in chapter 13, uh, we have to hit this context that in, in verses 31 through 38, uh, what Jesus does is he just tells the the disciples, he, he explains to them yet again, you know, by the way, I'm going to go and be glorified, which, you know, we think about being glorified. We're like, whoa, wow, that's, that's good. Glorification is good. But he says, well, my glorification is going to be the suffering uh, that I'm going to endure on the cross, the uh, flogging, the spitting, the beating. Uh, so these disciples, they, 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 they're together in this intimate setting with Jesus, you know, and basically waiting to hear, you know, on the brink of going uh, to this full glory. And they're, they're probably anticipating. And then he says, hey, by the way, this glory is going to be one of suffering and dying. So, He's probably, you know, struck a little bit of fear in the disciples, um, maybe um, unsettled them a little bit. So in chapter 14, 1 and following, we want to hear, you know, specifically pick up on the idea of comfort that he now, after he explains to him that they're going to be, uh, that he's going to be crucified, dead and buried and beaten, and it's not going to go too well. It's not going to be very comfortable. He does give them the comfort uh, in the later verses of chapter 14. 
Jesus is, the real Jesus is kind of a morbid guy. He's always talking about his death, right? You know, everyone wants to talk about the bread. And he's like, no, I'm going to die. And just before this as well, we also have seen Peter's denial. We spent a lot of time on that in Luke recently. But just before our text, Peter has boasted, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus kind of looks at him sideways. Oh, really, Peter? Will you you lay down your life for me? Are you sure? I don't think so. And then he turns, as you say so well, to comfort. And that's going to lead us to that word paracleto, paraclete here uh, by the end of our text. So picking up at 14 verse 1, Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Uh, I'm just going to, uh, I love, I love the, the third person imperative. We don't have a way to translate this kind of stuff in English very well. We have second person imperatives. You do this or you stop doing that. But the third person is is something Greek does a lot, and, and we just can't quite do it, so we come up with this these let us do this or let let them do this kind of language. And so let not your hearts be troubled. Uh, it, it's it's more than that. It's, it's, he's saying the trouble is, is reasonless. There's no reason to be troubled, although I guess that isn't third person, is it? That's second. But anyway, um, there is no reason to be troubled because I have control. And then believe in God, believe also in me. Trust in God, right? Not just think about there being a God, but trust that the God is for you, that I am for you. And then this fact of promise, verse two, very famous in uh, American Christian circles. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, which is not if like maybe, but it's if like I'm gonna, I will come again. And will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. And then he says something that leads to a question, but the comfort here that where I am is where you're going to be. That's what I want it to want to have happen. But you have, you got two issues here. Is he talking about going away to the cross and rising again? Is he talking about ascending into heaven and coming again? And then the issue I mentioned of American Christianity, we were talking again at the break. I remember a song from uh, kind of my, my pop American Christianity days about my father's house having many rooms and we're going to play football on the grass and yay, we're all going to go to heaven. Uh, is that what this is about? Is that wrong? Is it right? Is it mostly right? Thoughts on any of that, Pastor Richard? Yeah, yeah. Um, before hitting that, just briefly, you know, when he says, do not let your hearts, you know, he's talking about the, the word there is cardia, which is the heart. This is the innermost place of the person that's unsettled. But he's saying, do not let that innermost place uh, be troubled um, because uh, believe in me and believe in God. And so there's there's this this verb of believing to to cling to Jesus and to the Father in the midst of our troubledness. And then and then again, you get to verse two there. Uh, you know, I think when we look at this verse two, you know, the, the debate can be, you know, what are these rooms exactly? You know, what is what is being suggested here? Well, what we know for certain is that these rooms are are to give us comfort. So if we think about having a room, you know, we're we're down here in St. Louis with the family mm-hmm. and traveling down. And we're living out of the minivan for the last couple of days, you know, traveling, you know, some thousand miles from North Dakota. And we get to the hotel and we come in and usually I look at my wife and it's like, you know, we got a room. Yeah, right. You know, we're protected. You can hit lock on the door. There's safety. There's security. Lie on and the bed. So, yeah, <laughs> lay on the bed, take a nap and fall asleep. And so when we think of rooms, rooms give us comfort. They give us security. They give us a place to lay our head down and not be troubled. And so we see here this This is a very comforting, um, um, you know, way of looking at this. You know, do not be troubled. Believe in me and believe in the Father. And then also know that I'm going to prepare a place where there's going to be security. There's going to be rest. There's not going to have to be any worry of you uh, being attacked or losing your life or being uh, persecuted. Uh, There's comfort uh, in me right now 
by believing in me and also comfort coming, no matter what's going to happen, especially in the context of them seeing him suffer and die on the cross, knowing yeah. that there is this, this future comfort coming as well. Okay, so driving at that the main point is of many, many rooms being, look, I'm, I'm, I got this thing under control. Right. And so your hearts, and it is a third person imperative. I was able to look. It's not second. It's your hearts. You own them, but the hearts of yourself, they have no reason for fear in me. But now, what about this? Is he talking about heaven? Is he talking about the resurrection? And then I'll throw another curveball in this because you made me think of this. C.S. Lewis, who I like on many occasions, wrote about this at one point, and, and I think he's quite wrong. He talked about these many rooms being the denominations. And so we all have these different denominations, and it's okay because we disagree, but we're fine. Is that what Jesus is getting at? Well, I think I think well, what's Lewis? No, I don't agree with you know the different denominations. <laughs> of course, I mean we could we could we could spend the next twenty minutes with all those jokes where you know uh, you go up to heaven and the Lutherans think they're alone up there and yeah, all, yeah, all yeah, those yeah. jokes right. you can hear. But I think I think what we want to really maybe kind of embrace both and understanding that it's his suffering and death. Jesus' suffering and death is that which prepares the many rooms. His suffering and death on the cross is that is that which uh, is identical to preparing this place for us to rest. So apart from his suffering and death, there's no place to have a room, no place to to rest. It's only as we go through the cross, as we go through the suffering and through the pain, uh, is that uh, is the way that Jesus is preparing a place for them. And apart from him going through that suffering, there's there's no place for them to rest. Right. So that he himself is rest, which is what his, his next statement really is, right? So he says, and you know the way to where I am going— and I think he can say that because I've been telling you guys this for quite some time now, but Thomas does us all a favor of saying what we're all thinking. What are you talking about, Jesus? Uh, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Which is, again, going to the cross, ascending into heaven, kind of both at work here at the same time. And Jesus has a line that we always quote because it's just so good. Jesus says in response to Thomas not knowing where Jesus is going or what is the way to be with him, he just says, I am the way, dude. Wake up. Hello. Son of God, in your face, I am the truth. I am the life. And then the divine negation here as well, the, the, the positive no that creates a distinction between the fall and salvation. No one comes to the Father except through me. Often used to prove that uh, Jesus is the only way of salvation in, in sort of apologetic debates, but really not his point here. His point is is the first statement that I am here to provide the way to the Father, right? And you can't have a way if always are the way. There, there's no such thing. If everybody's special, nobody's special. So Jesus is the way, truth, and life. And now, verse 7, I'll throw that in here too. If you had known me, you would have known my father also from now on. You do know him and have seen him. That'll lead to another question, but with just a few minutes here before we go to break, uh, I am the way. Yeah, you know, the, the, there's two sides to this. I mean, on the one side, you know, it, by him saying that he is the way, the truth, and life, uh, not only is he saying that uh, he is the way, it's a definite article. It's not like he's a way, a truth, and a life. So it, it gives an exclusiveness to Christianity. Uh, but this also rules out all works, all worthiness and endeavors um, that we can bring to the table. So it's it's not, uh, salvation is not by the way of my works, by me pulling myself up by my bootstraps, by the way of Jesus. So that's, that's maybe you would say kind of a, a bad news perspective of this, but there's also the flip side. There's the good news that he is the way. Uh, he is the 
truth. So I don't need to be searching for all these different uh, truths out there. Truth is found in the person of Jesus. The way to the Father, the way to heaven is through Jesus. And so he defines that for us so that we don't have to be searching around, going up and down, left and right, searching for uh, ways and truth and so forth. It's right there in front of us in Christ Jesus and his word. So we want to know the way to heaven. It's in Christ. We want to know truth. Truth is Jesus. Truth is not some abstract idea. It is a person, uh, that being Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father as a fallen person, but Jesus has come that we might go to the Father. And here's the thing. Here he is right in front of you with his word, even this very morning, waking you up with the comfort of what he's done for you on the cross. You're listening to your morning drive for the soul on Worldwide KFUO. We'll be back in just a moment. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org slash jobsboard. I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. Planned Parenthood released its annual report, and it reveals declines in nearly every area of Planned Parenthood except for two, abortions and the organization's profits. March for Life President Jeannie Mancini joins me on World Lutheran News Digest Wednesday and again on Saturday to discuss what the annual report says, doesn't say, and distorts. KFUO, your morning drive for the soul, bringing you the good news of Jesus and what he's done for you. This morning, my guest, Pastor Matthew Richard, author of a new book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? from Concordia Publishing House in studio with me, talking about John chapter 14, verses 1 to 17. And Jesus has left us at verse 7, saying, if you had known me, which I think is interesting, is like, you know, is it you, I think it is, you humanity don't know me. You can't know me, because if you did, you would have known my Father also. But I'm here now so that from now on you do know the Father in me and have seen him. And this leads then to a question from Philip, who really expresses a very common thought, a very common misguided goal, I think, of many Christians, which is to see the Father. It was also a misguided goal of Moses, by the way. Show me your glory. Can't be done. Right? You have to go through Jesus. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus just kind of is sad. Uh, have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Right? I, the Father's in me, which is not to say the Father and the Son are one. Maybe this has got some Trinity stuff going on here. But it's true that whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And this gets, I want to kind of stop there, Pastor Richard, and, and emphasize this as well. I mean, I think there is this misguided hope that, kind of like the Mormons actually teach, uh, that when we die and go to heaven, you're going to see the Father, Son, and Spirit kind of all sitting on three thrones together. And like, you get them to just talk to the Father without Jesus sometime. And I, I'm not convinced that's Trinitarian theology. Yeah, when you look at this, I mean, what Philip is 
messing up here is this, is Philip is looking for something more tangible than Jesus. Than Jesus, yeah, that's right. <laughs> He's looking for something more than Jesus and his word. And Jesus is basically saying, you know, hey, uh, you want to know uh, about the Father? You know the Father because I'm here. Uh, we look at the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We would say three uh, distinct different persons, mm-hmm. but one divine essence. And so to know Jesus is to know the Father. Uh, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is all about pointing us to Jesus. And so uh, we see Philip here, it really it's, it's, it's showing uh, that uh, Philip is really kind of missing the mark here. And we also sense in, in a way uh, the Lord's boy, just man, if I put myself you know, right, right then and there to watch Jesus. I mean, boy's heart must have sunk to hear this. It's like, man, you've been with me all this time. You've seen the miracles. You've seen everything, and you're asking for something more, something more tangible than right. what is right here in front of you. And you're going to see my full glory on the cross, and not only the the death on the cross, but the resurrection. And you're still looking for more. But boy, are we any different? I mean, as human beings, we always are looking for more, something more tangible, something a little bit more that we can hold on to. And I'm convinced if we get, you know, if the Lord would be like, fine, here, there you go. We'd still want more. No, that's that's hell. Literally. Yeah. I mean, we just, we just, we just are always clinging for something more and and we're no better than uh, Philip at all in this text. So let's go to the flip side of this, though, and someone who reads this and says, see, there's no Trinity because the Father is the Son. Jesus said so. How would you respond to that? One more time here. Okay, so someone looks at this text. Uh, so uh, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? And they say, therefore, there's no Trinity. Because, see, Jesus says he's the Father. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, that's and really when it comes down to it, when you see in Scripture, uh, yesterday being uh, the uh, whole the, the Trinity Sunday where we, where we uh, uh, said the Athanasian Creed and we hear, in the Scripture we hear, throughout the Scripture, we see the Father, we see the Son, and we see the Spirit, uh, especially in John chapter 3, all three persons at work, you know, the Father being well pleased of Jesus when he's being baptized, and the Holy Spirit coming upon Christ, and, and so forth. So we see all three distinct persons working and operating, and yet at the same time, this bold confession that they are one. Mm -hmm. Uh, No doubt about it, that they are one. And so this is something where, you know, (laughs) I heard a sermon the other day. uh, Yeah, it was was in my my home church. Uh, We had uh, Pastor Chris Brademeyer uh, preaching for me, so I, I logged on, and I loved I loved his 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 way he was phrasing. It. He said, "In Christianity, uh, three equals one, and one equals three. That's right. Uh, and so, you know, he said he's talking about maybe going back to math class, and when you're doing your arithmetic, write down three equals one, and one equals three. That's that's correct uh, mathematics for Christianity. And so, uh, logically, it doesn't make sense, but according to the confession of Scripture, according to the confession of Jesus and His Word, uh, three distinct persons, one divine." essence. That is the heart of the Trinity. I want to kind of next level what you just did there for the sake of the listener. So what you did in my ask a question about, well, doesn't this text teach that there's only one, there's only one person, you let scripture interpret scripture. You went to another text. Yes, this text teaches the unity of the essence between Jesus and the Father, but it's not the only verse in the Bible. <laughs> There's right. a lot more. And so you went to a verse, John 3, same book even, right. in which it's clear that Jesus is also distinct from the Father. You can go to the Garden of Gethsemane, in which it's clear. how You don't pray to yourself, you know, unless you're a complete idiot, right? He prays to his Father in heaven. They are distinct from each other. And that is the pattern of Scripture interpreting Scripture, which someone who comes along says, look, this verse says this, therefore, well, you got to be careful with that. You want to you hold on to all the scripture and not just 
one or two verses. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that, and that's really how you can get Christian heresy, where you just take one, you, you cherry picking, right? Yep. You, you cherry pick one verse, and you build a whole theology off of one verse, and you negate the rest. I mean, we, we do this all the time as, as Christians in North America, even like our eschatology, the, the, the view of the end times, we'll take Revelation, and we'll build our whole theology off of Revelation, and we'll neglect what Jesus says in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, and we'll also deny what is spoken in the book of Daniel. Or we'll just say, hey, we're just going to look at Daniel and, and base our whole end times theology off of Daniel and negate or, or forget about what Jesus says in Matthew and Mark, as well as uh, the uh, book of Revelation that we read. And so we have to put them all together and have a comprehensive view of our theology based on of right. all of those as they work together. And what we'll see is they do work in harmony. They do work in harmony, absolutely. And so again, yeah, pulling one verse, chair picking that one out and building a theology off of it, that's how you get heresy. Yeah. Like I say, we Lutherans, we has all the verses. <laughs> uh, so jumping back then to uh, the continuation after Jesus says, you know, don't you know who I am, Philip? The, the Father is in me. Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Verse 10, do you not believe that I am, notice the I am statement? That's not one of the ones that normally gets pulled in with, I am the vine, I am the good shepherd, but I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, which is really interesting too here. So so Christ as eternal son is not eternal source. We said that yesterday with the Athanasian Creed. The Father is the only source. The Son is the ever-present, what's the right word? I don't want to say a heretical thing. The ever-present image of the source, the ever-present medium of the source, the place where you do see the source present himself, the begotten one. I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me. Right? And this is a, here we have a, a second person imperative. You trust me. Both a command, one we can't keep, and a promise. I'm going to make it happen. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else, at least believe on account of the works themselves. Can, can you at least have the crowd type of faith that thinks the works are kind of cool? At least, at least focus on that. And then, uh, go ahead and comment on that, because I want to I come back to verse 12 and 14. And we actually have two segments. We've got to move kind of quick here, but 12, and four, 12 to 14 has its own issue. So, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think you know, definitely you see uh, Jesus uh, communicating this, this, this extremely intimate connection with the Father. I mean, yep. just, to, just to think about this at that time and place, uh, to say the Father's in me and I am in the Father. I mean, boy, the, no wonder why they picked up stones and wanted to, to, to stone him. No wonder why they wanted to drag him to the cross. I mean, this is, uh, for the first century uh, Jewish person, this is this is absolute heresy, but this is a bold confession. Not only that, but then you look at the signs that Jesus did, all these miraculous signs. These are signs, um, not that they would have faith in the signs themselves, but these signs would point to something greater. These miracles pointing to his divinity, pointing to who his uh, who he is, and his mission. So all these signs and these miracles are are, are displaying and proclaiming uh, the 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 uh, identity of Christ um, and his this this intimate connection with the Father uh, that uh, would display his own divinity uh, himself. And uh, they would just pull people into the narrative and pull people into who Jesus is as he marched towards that cross to die that bloody death and to rise from the grave for our everlasting life. And the ultimate sign in John's gospel, the seventh sign, as it were, is is that cross. So then 12, <laughs> I have a fun story with 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and 
Greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. I remember seeing a picture of a, of a, of a congregation's front sign that had one of those places where you could put uh, phrases on it. I know you've seen that a lot of times they're filled up with puns or whatever. And so it, it literally says something like Trinity United Methodist Church doing better than Jesus. Like, that's, that's actually what it said. I was just dying. But but so what, what does he mean here? What are these greater works? And on the one hand, I think we like to think, well, it's going to be miraculous. It's going to be wonderful. But like what I think of, though, is what about Stephen? What about what Stephen did as he died? You know, in the same death, Jesus died. Is that what this is about? And then with this, the prayer part, 13 to 14, whatever you ask in my name, this is connected to the works that got to be greater as well. This I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So in one sense that the great works that Jesus will give us to do is not to do anything, but to ask him to do something and to know it will be done. And he promises it will be done. For if you ask anything in my name, I will do it, which as Dr. Luther convicts me of regularly in the large catechism on this, I don't believe that statement. If I did, I'd ask for a lot more stuff. Thoughts? You know, yeah, back to uh, verse 12 there, the greater things, you know, that that verse is oftentimes spoken by, you know, the uh, prosperity healing people saying, you know, we're going to do these greater works. But, you know, we we assume that it's uh, qualitatively greater so that we're going to do greater quality of good works, greater things. Uh, But I think we can look at this, you know, we have to define what does greater mean? I would say greater being in quantity, you yeah, know, think think about this. Every time there's a baptism, hmm. that is a wonderful miracle. I mean, that's yeah. a, that's a great work. And so you think about this quantity, you know, quantity wise, the number of baptisms that happen, the number of times people receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, literally billions of people every Sunday receiving the body and blood of Christ into their hmm. mouths and into hmm. their bellies for the forgiveness of their sins. Uh, the word of God being proclaimed from pulpits around the world on Sundays and throughout the week. These are the quantitative, you know, the numerical, the number the greater works that are being done, which is going to be uh, in number, not necessarily quality. Right. I mean, the same Jesus that did his work, this miracle of granting forgiveness, of healing and so forth, is the same Jesus at work in his word and sacraments today, uh, granting forgiveness of sins to poor, miserable sinners. And so uh, we so easily, we look at this and we just automatically assume in in our, in our context, oh, well, these are going to be greater works qualitatively. Well, you know, we're imposing our own ideas upon the text there rather than actually looking at this and say, what does this greater works mean? And that would be uh, necessarily more quantity. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a really, that's a really clever distinction. I like that. I've never heard that before. Thoughts about prayer? Prayer. Well, you know, just prayer in general, uh, it's the voice of our faith. That's John Pless who says that. I just love how he states it, that prayer is the voice of faith. It's it's us hearing the word, uh, receiving the sacraments, and then echoing back, uh, echoing back uh, the 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 uh, voice of our faith to our Lord um, and confessing. Uh, you think about the Lord's prayer in general. What we're what we're doing the Lord's prayer is we're praying against our old Adam. We're praying mm. against the world. We're praying against the devil. We're praying about our own insecurities that we need more grace. And so, when we pray, we 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 put our petitions before the Lord and uh, we put all of our petitions knowing that when God says yes to those petitions, uh, it's because he's good. And when he says no, it's typically because of our sinful nature. We're asking with, with uh, you know, just maybe a sinful motive. And mm. and so the Lord God, he does answer us in prayer, uh, but oftentimes it's not the way that we want. But ultimately, when we look at the Lord's prayer, it's the voice of the Christian faith, praying against the devil, praying against the world, and praying against our sinful nature. Where Luther really got me on this one again in, in his large category on the Lord's Prayer is the idea that 
I don't ask for things because I'm afraid I'm going to have the wrong motive for it. And so I refrain from asking as if God can't say no, right? And as if I'm not his child. Like, I, I don't mind if my child asks me for something that I got to say no to ultimately because it's bad for them. And then I teach them, look, here's right, why it's bad right. for you, right? And so what Luther really like opened up to me was like, just throw it at throw it at Jesus. It doesn't matter what it is. He'll say no if it's bad. He'll let you know. But it's, the other flip side of this is like, no, he really wants to give you what you want. He, he desi- Like a father wants to give a child a fish when they ask for a fish. And so ask for the fish. And then if he does say no, just know that it, well, it would have been bad for you if he did right. that, right? So right. He does, he's not going to give you what's bad, but he's going to give you what's good. And what, part of what's good is to know I can go to the Father freely and ask him for whatever right. I want. So it's like its own reward in one sense. The freedom. It's about being in the freedom of the gospel rather than looking at prayer under the way of the law, if I can say it that way. Last three verses. Plenty here, too. Really opening the next segment of the text. And so we'll, we'll kind of pick up with these a bit tomorrow. But he says, verse 15 and just continuation talking, though. Notice how much he's talking. This is like three straight, four straight chapters of this. If you love me, he says, you will keep my commandments. Now, don't hear this as kind of the divine, are you righteous or not, either or. If you really love me, then you'll prove it by keeping my commandments. Slow down a little bit. It's more like the reality of loving me, the reality of being one with me is that you will keep what I say. And so also with the word commandment, don't assume it means only do this. It really means all of my words. He's going to say this again later. Very, very clearly. If you love me, you will keep my words, which is so scripture interpreting scripture. The point being that to be in Christ is to be in his words. And where what happens in Christ's words? I will ask the father and he will give you another helper. Pastor Richard mentioned earlier, parakleo, paraclete, comforter, sometimes translated that way, a very unique word the Holy Spirit, clearly, I will give you in my words, right? To be with you forever, this comforter, the spirit of truth, he says in verse 17, whom the world cannot receive, which I think some of American Christianity is really trying to make the world receive the spirit. And so they've changed who the spirit is. The world will not receive the spirit because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. The question is, of course, how? And I tried to answer it a moment ago with the fact that he's in Jesus' words. We got about uh, three, four minutes left here, Pastor Richard. Yeah, in verse 15, I think what we want to make a mention of here when he says, you know, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Uh, that is not in the imperative. In other words, this is not a command. Uh, it's in, in, in the technical sense, it's in an indicative. An indicative mood is basically showing what will happen. It's It comes across as a promise. And so, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, though you will keep is the indicative. It's the promise. This is a, a not only a promise, but it's a prediction that when we are in Christ and we are being loved, we love Mm-hmm. Uh, we think of um, uh, is it First John three sixteen yeah uh, that uh, we 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 love because we've been first loved. I, I had an old professor and he once would always say to us in seminary he would say, gentlemen, uh, you as pastors can't rightly love your congregations unless you're first loved by the Savior. Mm-hmm. And so his goal was always making sure that we as pastors knew that we were the beloved, that we were uh, being ministered to ourselves, and then it's in that that we're able to love not only the Lord but our neighbor as well. And so this is a, a promise. It's a prediction and a promise that 
We will love our neighbor. We will keep his commands um, as he what loves us. Now, when we don't, that's because of our sinful nature, and and that is what drives us to repentance, where we say, "God, have mercy on me, my sinful nature. Forgive me of my sins. Crucify that old Adam yet again. Drown him in the waters of my baptism yet again, and uh, restore me unto your salvation, and create that clean heart in me, so that I may love." And this really ultimately happens by the Holy Spirit, this Advocate, this Comforter that is given to us, the Holy Spirit who. Uh, is given to us in the Word. He comes to us and He's the sanctifier, the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us in the truth, leading us in the Word and ultimately pointing us always back to Jesus and His gifts for us. So talk about the world not receiving the Spirit then. The world not receiving the Spirit. Well, you know, we think of this, our, our sinful nature, we cannot by our own reason and strength believe upon Jesus Christ. I mean, this is our, we're dead in our sins. And so uh, a dead person can't uh, jump up for joy. A dead person needs life breathed into him. And that's the miracle of salvation. We are dead, dead in our sins. Not like, boy, was it the Princess Bride show, right? Where, mm, yeah, where mostly we- dead. Where Wesley was like mostly dead. Mm-hmm. So there's hope, you know, there's yeah. no hope for us. We're not mostly dead. We're dead, dead. And so the miracle is the very fact that the Holy Spirit has to come and breathe life into us to to resurrect us from our sin, to to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And this happens by the miracle of the power of the word of the Holy Spirit working to give us life. And apart from the Holy Spirit, we cannot choose Jesus. But yet in the Spirit, by the Spirit, the Spirit comes to us and gives us grace, enlightens us, opens our eyes, gives us faith so that we may partake of all the greatness of the Lord. As my guest, Pastor Matthew Richard, he is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Gwitter, North Dakota, and he has not been mostly dead all day, but he has published a new book with Concordia Publishing House, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? You can find that at cph.org or amazon.com. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah. The spirit of truth, right? What does the spirit do? Jesus says in another place, when he comes, we're going to get to this in a couple days. When he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, right? Sin, ours, righteousness, Jesus, judgment, the result. Either in or out of Jesus, either in or out of death, in or out of life. The spirit of truth. But what is he here to do? Is he here to, to destroy He did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And the Spirit, is he here to to make you rich? No. Is he here to make you happy? Well, no, not really that either. Is he here to make you alive forever? Yes. And he does so by reminding you every single day of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Because that cross is the glory of God on your behalf. The great, powerful mercy of handing you back to the Father through the flesh and blood of this one man, Jesus Christ. Listen to his time on Worldwide KFUO. Back in a moment for some Worldview Watch. Stick around.